Hi, everybody. It's Bean, and welcome to an all-new Great Moments in Weed History. Finally, after nearly 100 episodes of this program, we are about to fully and unabashedly nerd the fuck out about weed. From terpenes to THC, I find the biochemistry of the cannabis plant to be endlessly fascinating, and our guest this week, Alec Dixon, is the absolute perfect person to take us into all the details of what makes this plant so special. In 2010, Alec was one of the co-founders of SC Labs, one of the earliest cannabis analytics laboratories out there. Quick shout out to Steep Hill Lab for being the first. In this episode, we're going to hear about how cannabis labs were integral to identifying the first high CBD strains out there, which spread that important cannabinoid to people in need, and how they have since led a huge cultural shift in our focus from THC potency to terpene profile as the standard of cannabis quality. So this is an episode for full-on weed nerds and also for you newbies out there who want to learn more about our favorite plant and how to fully appreciate it. I've known Alec for a really long time, and I'm so excited to have him as a guest on this podcast because he's somebody who really, for me, combines a deep scientific knowledge of cannabis with a real heartfelt respect for its place as a sacred plant medicine, and as a spiritual aid. Alex just has a truly encyclopedic knowledge of this plant at the chemical level, and he is great at explaining some of the really subtle nuances of connoisseurship, of cultivation, of how to, in essence, get the most out of this plant and to bring it into the mainstream of our culture through the kind of third-party verification of safety and efficacy that cannabis labs can bring to the conversation scientifically without losing sight of what attracts us to this plant to begin with, how it enriches our lives, how it might enhance our sense of spirituality, how it can be a healthier alternative for a lot of people to things you might be doing to relieve stress. For example, I don't know, crushing a pint of ice cream last night uh, (laughs) as you worry about the world would have been uh, much uh, better to, to just smoke weed and stop there and not combine it with that other magnificent drug sugar, but here we are. Anyway, needless to say, I learned quite a few things about weed in this conversation, and I also learned a lot about Alec and his personal weed journey. At one point in this story, I actually note that Alec found himself in the most weedless circumstances I've ever heard of anyone being in, and I speculated that it was perhaps the most weedless circumstances imaginable on planet Earth. So my challenge to you, dear listener, is try to guess where that would be. What would be the most weedless circumstances you could find yourself in? Listen to the episode, and uh, I kind of promise you that the situation Alex was in was even weedless er than your guess. Now, 
as I said, I'm super excited to nerd out on weed. Um, but you know, it is not the most unique premise. I am aware that out on Instagram and elsewhere on the internet and, uh, pretty much anywhere you go these days, there's no shortage of people nerding out about weed, talking about the latest hype strains, the rarest phenotype hash that costs a thousand dollars just to smell it. Uh, and you know, <laughs> I guess, you know, the more the merrier. Uh, you're not going to catch me getting mad at people for loving weed too much. But after 20 years in the talking about cannabis game, please allow me to offer a couple of caveats when it comes to these self-appointed weed experts out on the internet. One, these people blowing up your feed, uh, they may know a few things about weed, but they don't know everything about weed, even if they act like they do. And point of order number two, a lot of these self-appointed weed experts think they know a lot more about weed than they actually do. And yeah, I guess if I was going to add a number three, it would be that they do tend to talk about themselves and how great they are a fair bit. <sighs> You know, I'm, I'm aware I'm starting to sound like an old man over here shaking my fist. So I guess my point is that while I do personally find this weed nerd type stuff fascinating, it's just one small part of a very, very big story. Most important to remember is that weed is a medicine that can save your life. And it is also in many, too many places a crime that can get you locked up. So don't get so caught up and nerding out about the granular details of this or that strain that you, as they say, miss the forest for the trees. Also, I gotta say, if all you wanna talk about is the most expensive and exclusive weed and extracts and glass pipes of all time, who does that leave out of the conversation? Now, in my conversation with Alec, we got into the plant at an elemental biochemical level, and we also talked about how it helped him transform his life after getting out of the military. So it is in the great moments in weed history tradition, quite a story with several great moments along the way. But before we get into it, I do want to stop and say a huge heartfelt thank you to everyone who supports this podcast on Patreon. You can join us by going to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com for as little as a dollar you can show your support for our preservation of cannabis history, for the kinds of stories that we tell here once a weed on Weedness Day, and you can get access to every single episode of this show because these Great Moments in Weed History episodes are happening once every other weed or once every other week here in the podcast feed where you're listening to this show, but we are still a weedly podcast coming out once a weed but only for our Patreon supporters. So go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com right now and sign up. You can put five on it. You'll get the video version of every episode of this show. You'll get the secret seshes 
that happen every other weed. You can put a little more on it and get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly, mailed right to your door. I'm going to say in a very, uh, be a little vulnerable for a moment. We are living and dying here at great moments in weed history on your support. So if you are throwing in on this show and getting high on history with us every week and checking out the secret sessions for Patreon supporters only and seeing me hold up this joint I'm about to light because you're watching the video version of this podcast. Thank you so much. And if you haven't yet found it in your heart, and to throw in on this shit, um, you know, I will say we're coming up on our hundredth episode of this podcast. We are reliant on your grassroots support. We are shadow banned on every platform. We've got government agents trying to block the podcast waves as soon as I send them out there. Corporate America is out to get us. The government's out to get us. The man, I can't say what I want to say about weed or they'll come drag me away to a re-education camp. Man, is that what you want to hear? That, 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 that. I don't know, man. I like to tell you stories about weed history. I like to honor the culture of this plant. Um, love the opportunity to nerd out about weed with you. Uh, and uh, just want to make sure that we could keep doing this show long into the future. So last plug for it, please just go to great moments in weed history dot com. If you enjoy the show, see what you've been missing and maybe uh, throw a throw a couple nugs in the jar, as they say. Speaking of weed, you certainly don't want to nerd out on weed without some weed to nerd out on, if you know what I'm saying. So I've got this delicious joint rolled up uh, in some counter-programming to what you're about to hear. We're going to super nerd out on weed. I'm just going to say it's not any specific anything. It's some some regular old weed, and I'm glad to have it because, you know, when it comes to weed strains and all that, the difference between this and that is uh, vastly less important than the difference between some and none. I'm very glad and blessed to have some to share with you for this episode. I hope you've got some thing to smoke as well. If you're not quite there yet, you know what I'm going to say. It's cool. Just hit pause and use that time to roll yourself a joint or to split a blunt or to pack a bong or to endabulate a dab or to eat a wise amount of edibles and not too much or to slather yourself from head to toe in topicals, whatever you want to do to get ready, because when you're ready and you hit unpause, we'll be ready for another great moment in weed history. Welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. We are excited and honored to have you on the program. 
Thank you very much. I've been a long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic to hear. And yes, you know, we like to start at the beginning. We like to ask our guests straight off, when did cannabis come into your life? Where does that relationship begin? Yeah, so first off, thank you again. Really, uh, I've always so deeply respected kind of your work and as a journalist and Great Moments Sweet History and and uh, really honored to be part of this uh, the show. My first uh, encounters with the great uh, plant Santa Maria uh, came uh, in whenever I was uh, growing up in Roswell, New Mexico. Some of my best friends at the time and in uh, Roswell kind of had shared some ganja with me and it, you know, just tickled me in a way that, you know, was unforgettable. I had a very, you know, small interaction with cannabis in my high school years, but then I ended up joining the Navy, you know, off to boot camp. And then I was gone for five years and, you know, had zero tolerance policy, so no cannabis at all. And so, you know, there was a pretty long, long break, um, you know, through my service in the in the military. Did you encounter cannabis during your time in the military, whether it was among other soldiers or perhaps being deployed to a, a place with with cannabis as part of the culture? You know, I was uh, I was on submarines whenever I was in the Navy. And so I had the awesome opportunity to be stationed in Pearl Harbor um, on Oahu. Uh, so I was there on a submarine for three and a half years. And. Um, I remember whenever I was there, you know, some some of the civilians, you know, kind of that we would hang out with would, you know, kind of puff herb. Um, it would, but to you know, during the time where I was in the Navy, they, the military, very thoroughly indoctrinates you into this belief that you know zero tolerance policy, any detection, any, you know, kind of uh, inebriating substance other than alcohol and pharmaceuticals and, you know, kind of nicotine, you know, is strictly off limits. And if it's detected, you get an other than honorable or dishonorable discharge. And so, you know, that just kind of really stuck with me. And I just had this, you know, five-year period of abstinence from cannabis during that time of my life. I, I will say this as well, as, as, as somebody with, uh, anxiety, a touch of claustrophobia, and uh, an anti-authoritarian attitude, a, a, a military submarine is probably the worst place to get high that I can imagine outside of, you know, uh, you know, being literally tortured. So I can't blame you there. I will say also, you know, during the Gulf War, I was working at, at High Times and we would often get anonymously submitted to us. Uh, photos of huge fields of cannabis in Afghanistan and other places that people were stationed. Uh, I, I got an incredible story submitted to us by a soldier who had begun um, smoking hashish uh, with locals in Iraq. So it can definitely be part of the military experience. You can check out our episode of Great Moments in Weed History about how Napoleon's invasion of Egypt uh, led to the first supply of hashish into Europe. But it sounds like a military submarine <laughs> and uh, getting the threat of dishonorable discharge combined to keep you weed free uh, for about five years. When does that when does that dry spell break? 
So I, I joined the Navy August 16th of 2001, which was uh, eight days after I turned 18. I was in, actually in boot camp when September 11th happened. I was in the Navy um, on submarines for five years. And uh, whenever I got out of the Navy, the submarine I was on kind of had left Pearl Harbor, um, went underneath the North Pole. Um, we actually surfaced at the North Pole. Uh, through like 10 feet of ice, um, doing a little emergency blow where the submarine shoots out of the water. But we ultimately were on a final destination to Virginia, for, uh, to Portsmouth, Virginia, where our, our boat was going into shipyard. Got out of the Navy um, in Virginia. Kind of, I, I was living in Virginia Beach, kind of you know, going to work in Norfolk. And I was kind of a local drunkard um, in what, as I was getting out of the Navy. I was a local drunkard at this bar um, called Peabody's, uh, actually in Virginia beach. And it was there that I met this really incredible, uh, human being in my life that ultimately really helped kind of bring me into who I am today. And it was this amazing female named Taylor Blake, who turned out to be the daughter of, um, this pretty legendary, um, cannabis advocate and a activist in Northern California that puts on the Emerald cup, Tim Blake. And kind of, that's really where my whole entrance into the cannabis space kind of came about. Wow, that is uh that is quite an origin story. Um yeah, we we've we've done an episode on this program about Abdullah and I getting to be judges of the Emerald Cup. I have uh often uh said I believe it is the the best of the large scale cannabis events uh by quite quite a bit at this point in terms of respecting the culture in terms of respecting the plant tim is a true og who who deserves an episode of this show all his own so uh, enough said there and what did you start to see in the plant uh before it became something you obviously have studied so much and have uh made part of your work life when did it start to speak to you personally and 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 when did you realize this is going to be a big part of my path going forward so i got out of the navy as a local drunkard at this bar um this amazing human being taylor blake was a bartender at this bar and she was about 10 years detached from her her california west coast family because her dad got busted kind of by the feds growing cannabis indoor in Santa Cruz in the eighties. And, and so, so yeah, so I, when I got out of the Navy, Taylor and I, you know, we, we were, we started dating. It was the first time that, um, I had smoked weed again, you know, after this five-year break and one of Taylor's really, uh, good friends that, uh, was bartender. She was a bartender with had shared a bowl with me. And, um, you know, I, I hit that bowl, like it was, you know, like I knew what I was doing, you know, and I got so awkwardly, uncomfortably high. I had to have, uh, my friend drive, drive me home in my own car. And then I had to go hide under the bed basically for the rest of the day. And it was a very, um, very un, an easy experience, you know, it was very difficult. And, and for what it's worth, I remember like the first 10 to 15 times I smoked, it was the same experience. And I almost said, I was almost turned into one of those people that said, Oh, it's not for me anymore. What I learned later on life is I, you know, had weight, you know, overstimulated my endocannabinoid system and, you know, kind of had got way too high. And then, you know, kind of, you know, that's a whole story on its own, but I just came to really respect and understand people's perspectives, you know, that are new time users or take a break for a period of time and then come back and have a negative experience and, you know, almost think it's the cannabis less than themselves. Clearly, that, that might be a situation where a lower dose of cannabis is going to uh, treat you more gently and more kindly. But I also really do like to point out, you know, if you haven't smoked in five years and 
cannabis is helping you process some trauma, mm-hmm. well, you got a five-year backlog mm-hmm. of, of fucking trauma. And often, um, when you talk to people who, who, you know, the two common experiences are, I was really drunk, and then somebody convinced me to smoke weed, and that is just a crossfade gone wrong. You know, yep. your body overloads. And that is one kind of overdoing it and definitely can can be really unfortunate for people who then might miss out on a life of cannabis. But the other subset is, um, and I'm speaking from person, I'm not speaking to your experience. I'm speaking to my experience. Mm-hmm. Having that experience where you're like, holy shit, I'm a fucking asshole. Holy shit, I acted in such a terrible manner and walled myself off from it. That's a difficult experience, but ultimately can be, you know, a rewarding one and an important one. And so I think that's something to keep in mind, whether you yourself are the person having that experience with cannabis or with psychedelics or what have you. And certainly if you are maybe trying to be helpful to somebody who is having that kind of experience. I couldn't agree more. You know, I think it's, it's, you know, I believe it's like a rite of passage that the plant puts you through in a big way, as well as, you know, some of these other really powerful entheogens that you were just describing. I mean, at a minimum, I believe that they command respect in how you approach and how you consecrate um, these these medicines and, you know, what times with what people for what reasons. But it was interesting because my first, you know, my first series of times when I got out of the Navy, it was exactly that, you know, and, and I, I, I came to realize how important of a space that is to be in, you know, with yourself and your mind and your thoughts and um, just to kind of really uh, establish the right kind of relationship with the plant. And, and over the years, you know, I've worked with, you know, a lot of veterans, you know, around, you know, this, how to, how to acclimate to this plant, prime the pump, your endocannabinoid system in a proper way to, um, you know, harm reduct any possibility of negative experience and to kind of help to really hone in on the like magic and wonderful kind of effects that this plant can bring, especially if you come at it with respect and, you know, microdosing THC, high dosing the CBD slowly over time, you know, you know, having a ritual of how you roll a joint and kind of, you know, doing things associated with pleasurable. And then, you know, over time, slowly start titrating up the amount of THC to where you can actually handle the effect. But, but anyway, there was this point in Virginia, um, you know, kind of when, when Taylor and I were living out there and, you know, I got out of the Navy, she got me a job working there as a bartender. And, and that's when I kind of came to learn who her dad was. And, you know, you know, he was so kind to kind of send us, you know, some nugs and, you know, I did, there were these big, beautiful, shiny kind of diamond looking, you know, like some light green, some dark purple and the range in between. The arrival of this incredible cannabis from from the West Coast is uh, uh, the first great moment in your personal weed history, as as, as I'm going to call it right there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's really that what began kind of really, you know, an actual proper introduction to the plant. You know, and then this initiation of how to work through my own internal turmoils and, you know, cognition and kind of qualms with, you know, my time in service and, you know, what I was in service to, you know, and, and so, yeah, that really was my moment, um, you know, that shifted my kind of life service ultimately out away from this military into plants and people. And seeing the diversity 
of cannabis for the first time, the different ways that the plant can look and smell and taste and affect you. Was that the beginning of your, forgive me, starting to nerd out on weed? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, because I mean, I remember when I first saw it, I, I didn't, I was like, what is this? You know, it was, it's going to feel very naive and, re- and, you know, reflection on it. Cause you know, I was, yeah, I was just, it just looked something so alien and different and the, the smells and, you know, I mean, what I, what I remember, you know, kind of from New Mexico was like, you know, that like brickweed kind of, you know, flavorless, aromaless, you know, there was, there was some effect, but, but this was the first time I really met the plant in such a way where I was just like kind of in awe and wonder like, whoa, what is this? You know, <laughs> and you know, this wonderful human being, Taylor Blake and I, we, we had the shared goal of moving to California together because she wanted to reconnect with her family. Uh, early 2000, we moved, uh, drove across the country to California. And, um, you know, originally I wanted to go to Southern California to go, you know, use the GI Bill, Cal State Law. Beach. I wanted to go for electrical engineering. I was following in my brother's footsteps of going to then go on to work at like Lockheed Martin or Raytheon or, you know, military industrial complex vibes. That's kind of the trajectory I was on, you know, and, and, you know, give so much thanks to this great plant for helping to set me straight and kind of really connect me to who I am as a human. You know, Tim Blake had kind of caught, caught word from uh, Taylor's mom that, uh, that, you know, we were having a hard time finding roots and, it was, you know, in early like February 2007 that he reached out to Taylor and invited us up to uh, Mendocino for to go through Gondra boot camp, you know, to move up to his property and kind of help out around, around, you know, um, and it was, you know, it, that was it was life changing to say the least, you know, moving up there. I remember having such a shallow thought whenever we first were moving up. Um, one of my biggest goals was to learn how to roll a joint. You know, I was just really starting to kind of, you know, develop my love and appreciation for this plant, um, this great teacher spirit plant. And uh, we moved up there and we were there till, you know, kind of through the end of the year, um, participating in a full sun outdoor kind of, you know, two parcels, 99 plants. We planted kind of, I dug trenches, you know, 200 gallon pots. I mean, it was thoroughly life changing and I learned so much more than I could have ever imagined you know, and kind of Tim Blake became, you know, my born again weed dad, essentially at that moment. I give so much thanks to the Blake family because Taylor helped really connect me into my life's work with this plant, cannabis. And then Tim kind of really helped teach me the way I feel like I've developed my bachelor's degree almost on the job training at that time. And uh, he also shared all my first psychedelic experiences with me. Tim Blake turned me on, you know, and and I am forever in gratitude and debt, uh, debt of gratitude to him for that. By the time, you know, Emerald Cup 2007 came along and the year had been wrapped up uh, from, you know, our full kind of life devotion to kind of growing these plants, full sun, outdoor, organic, learning how to be and live organic, how to not use or put chemicals on or in my body and begin this path or that's uh, this organic path it you know it was it was life-changing and that that really kind of like launched my career and and service to to cannabis and so to 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 do a very very quick recap you have gone from one of the least weedy environments uh (laughs) on the face of the earth because we talk sometimes about maximum security federal prisons i've i've interviewed several people who smoked weed on the reg uh, while serving, you know, these horrifically long federal sentences for cannabis. So they're not keeping weed out of federal prisons, but, uh, you know, you are on a military submarine under the North Pole. 
I'm going to say that's the least access to cannabis you can have <laughs> as a human being. And in not too many years later, you are on Tim Blake's legendary, at this point, certainly, outdoor, organic, emerald triangle, cannabis farm, all leading up to this event, the Emerald Cup, which now, you know, draws tens of thousands of people to a county fairgrounds in Sonoma County, California, but its roots are up in the Emerald Triangle, you know, maybe what was that first Emerald Cup that you attended, you know, give us uh, a feel of the room and the vibe of what that event was like? Totally. Um, so so 2007 Emerald Cup was at Area 101, uh, Tim Blake's pop property, the Spiritual Sanctuary and Event Center, um, where the Emerald Cup was birthed my first emerald cup i was actually parking cars in the mud in the rain and so this is a a harvest competition and celebration just like you would have in any other kind of agricultural uh region uh except this is for cannabis at a time when there are medical cannabis laws in place but there is also uh enforcement actions happening not just at the federal level but still from the state and the county it is uh, a very gray market moment in cannabis i can remember uh tim telling me that at the earliest emerald cups when they would announce the winners no one would come up yep. to uh accept the award uh until later in the parking lot they would take it and i i, I actually got to go to a to, to one that was still at Area 101. It was a few hundred people uh, at harvest time. And I uh, referred to it. Somebody asked me what it was like. I said it was the gathering of the beards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you know, it's it really funny because that's um, that was kind of very much my experience, you know, kind of going from square military, kind of who I was, to kind of being up at Area 101 for the year. Like, I mean, to say the least, it smashed my whole you know judge a book by its cover kind of thing because i came from just i, I look to most people like i was a i was a cop you know like <laughs> people were kind of at first when i was up there just all clean cut and no beard kind of thought i was like you know some weirdo kind of like that they shouldn't trust but and then you know kind of i do remember for many emerald cups especially the early on days of prop 215 um before it really started coming to the surface and being more accepted yeah people a, a lot of people up in humboldt and mendo kind of thought people were crazy for even showing up to the Emerald Cups early on. Yeah, these were days not so long ago, my friends, when when people went off to to start their farm, their growing in the spring, and you didn't see them again until after the harvest. You People quite literally wouldn't go to town to buy supplies, X, Y, or Z, anything that would draw attention to you. And, and you know, uh, thankfully that's changed for a lot of people. When did you start to look at the cannabis plant with the eyes of a uh, scientist? So after spending a year up at Tim's, um, learning how to grow outdoor organically, moved down to Santa Cruz. I started studying cultural anthropology and ethnobotany, and um, and we, you know had, we had a little indoor going in Santa Cruz. And and while 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 kind of going to school and kind of growing, 
Um, I ended up getting a really awesome opportunity to get a job at this uh, spot called Santa Cruz Hydroponics and Organics, um, run and owned by a, another really great mentor and teacher in my life named Eric Shedlarski, also known as Shed. A lot of, you know, really amazing cannabis kind of, uh, you know, just young buck leaders kind of coming up in the space kind of were, you know, kind of in a lot of ways groomed um, at uh, S Santa Cruz Hydroponics and Organics, uh, you know, kind of Bezel, Santa Cruz Veterans Alliance. Panacea, Victory Farms. There's you know a lot, lot, a lot of really amazing people kind of ended up coming up uh, under the tutelage of Shed as well. But more, I started working at the hydro shop uh, in Santa Cruz, a few of the hydro shops here, and kind of it was really there. I felt like I, I started developing my mat, my master's degree in a way. You know, just getting really detailed in fertigation and integrated pest management and kind of you know, organic versus conventional nutrients and kind of how to spray. And, you know, that's really kind of when a lot of stuff kind of, you know, bad practices really came to my consciousness, you know, because I was on this path, like organic, this is a sacred medicine, never kind of taint it. But then working at the hydro store, I was actively kind of selling kind of some EPA regulated gnarly pesticides in some little bottles, you know, fluoromite forbid, imidacloprid, kind of like a lot of these different, you know, pretty gnarly kind of chemicals were pretty widely used. I realized when people had problems kind of, and, you know, they didn't do enough prevention work, you know, preventatively to keep away bugs by using organic soaps and such. People that are faced with massive collapse, um, you know, can, can, can do some really gnarly things. And so that's when I realized there's, there's people just in it for the money and there's people in it for the plant and the spread of this plant. And it was at that point, I realized that people also at the time that were just in it for the money, they would spray kind of some death cocktail a week before harvesting the plants or two weeks before harvesting plants, you know, just to kind of like hide the problem. You know, because they didn't want it to kind of get to overgrowth or overspread. And that, that, that just in a way kind of really just turned me off to certain types of people that were growing this plant um, in the lead up kind of to legalization and such. This is an era that was commonly referred to as the Green Rush. And mm -hmm. it was happening uh, in part because of this gray market had reduced the risk without uh bringing in any kind of legalization there were great 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 aspects to that gray market but one of the unfortunate ones was what you described people coming in and seeing it as a way to make a lot of money with not as much risk no real love of the plant and no regulation in place regarding cultivation practices and no lab testing in place to verify that the cannabis was clean of these chemicals. And, and, and then just one more point, we're talking about chemicals that would be pretty sketchy for a plant that you are going to eat, but nobody tested them for a plant that you're going to smoke. Yep. 100%, you know, and, and, you know, and there was even real good, well, good intentioned people that just didn't know because, you know, you look at the pesticide bottle and it says, oh, you could spray up to, you know, 
you know, three weeks before harvest and it's gone. But that was before people knew, you know, and, you know, come to find out things last a lot longer than their stated kind of half-lives on these bottles that are produced by Monsanto and Syngenta and all these companies. You know, in 2009, me and three other partners came together to form SC Labs, um, which was a startup, you know, cannabis testing analytical lab. I, I remember I was working at the hydro store in Santa Cruz and kind of going to school at Cabrillo and had my little indoor and... And uh, I, I started to become friends with uh, this uh, gentleman named Josh Werzer. But Josh and I first started becoming friends, and and you know, um, you know, we 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 had this shared passion of cannabis in place. You know, I was working at the hydro store, and then he he had his little indoor going, and and he he actually applied for a Craigslist posting in two thousand seven or eight, two thousand eight, I think it was, uh, to become a cannabis scientist. It was at the first cannabis testing laboratory, Steep Hill, up in Berkeley. And so Josh was actually the first kind of lab director at Steep Hill when they kind of opened and were getting going. And I remember, you know, just being really fascinated with what that even meant, you know, cannabis testing laboratory. There was just this moment where I saw him kind of cocking off that he thought he could do it way better because they were using GC to test for cannabinoid content where he thought it would be HPLC, which would be the superior method, you know, because you could test for THCA and CBDA. But, you know, very this was just very early on in you know my whole understanding of what kind of a science even meant. So, you know, Josh, he thought he could do it better. And, you know, I just happened to be in a conversation, you know, kind of sometime that year in 2009, um, just where I kind of connected a couple dots and, um, you know, me, Jeff, Josh, and Ian Rice, uh, Jeff Gray, Josh Werzer, and myself, like we came together and, you know, we, we, we started SC Labs. And so, you know, pretty much, you know, testing cannabis, analytical chemistry on cannabis applied uh, since then. So it's been about, you know, 13 years kind of in the sole kind of hyper focus of, of analytical chemistry applied to cannabis. And it's been the most educational experience of my life for what it's worth. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to call this as the second great moment in your personal weed history and, <laughs> and really a pivotal moment in the history of cannabis and our modern understanding of the plant is the creation of these cannabis testing labs that are not completely controlled by the government and that are actually looking to understand the plant and have access to a huge supply of samples for the first time because states like California have dispensaries that are going to use these labs to be able to, for really the first time, inform consumers at the very least about THC percentage and uh, as it evolves much more. My question to you is, you know, over the past 13 years, being pretty close to the ground floor of that phenomenon, what have we all learned about cannabis through that process? You know, I'll preface it by saying you have probably seen as much and as many different kinds of cannabis as anybody walking the earth right now. To put, to put a lot on you, what have we learned over the last 13 years about this plant? Nice. Um, that's an uh, enormous question. Just at the beginning of cannabis testing, be starting, you know, in California for the longest time, everybody thought it was just THC, you know, and it was like kind of an early test that, you know, kind of steep hill had ran actually kind of up in Oakland where there, the first CBD strain was discovered, you know, and kind of that really helped kind of bring about this little shift that it's not all THC, right? There's other cannabinoids. Well, what are those cannabinoids? And all of a sudden CBD strains started becoming available, and, you know, kind of harlequins, canatonics, like AC 
ACDCs, Valentinex, right? There's these, these strains over time really started to kind of begin popping up, you know, that really helped kind of bring, you know, widen access, you know, and, and, uh, and diversify the type of effects that cannabis can provide to people that are looking for, say, CBD specifically, you know, and just all the miraculous ways it's been helpful to different types of conditions. When we opened, we, we, knowing the plant as well as we did up to that point from the cultivation standpoint, we developed very specific tests to what was happening on the cultivation level. So, you know, we invested in a triple quadrupole mass spectrometer. We, we tested for 12 of the most common pesticides, fungicides, and plant growth regulators that people were using from what we knew of on the market and from serving in the hydro store communities, you know, just knowing what people were using, right. To combat bugs and pathogens all that right we and also the plant growth regulators people used to use to make buds just like a rock you could throw through a window you know i remember the era that you're talking about it was so pronounced that you could really sometimes look at a at a at a at what was then still a sack of nugs you know probably in a ziploc bag and see that's not what buds look like you know they don't look like little boulders but to the average consumer or even the average enthusiast the person who smokes a lot of weed they really had no idea that that such a thing even existed never mind to be able to look for it never mind to be able to turn it down in an era when you know most people still had very limited choices you know it was kind of just how things were and you know and and, and people used to equate kind of just the bud density in these certain ways so that plant growth regulators would bring about as quality and certain things. But there's been a lot of breakthroughs. I think cannabis testing has really brought to the community. You know, um, it's helped kind of really substantially clean up the medicine supply. You know, there was a time kind of in the lead up to legalization where fail rates kind of for, you know, just the 12 pesticides we saw were 30 to, you know, thir approximately 30% in flowers for one of the 12 pesticides we tested for. You know, kind of extracts, distillation, where kind of everything concentrates and carries over in the extraction process. We, we saw 70 or 50 to 75% fail rates. All those fail rates just in, in, since legalization have substantially cleaned up, which is one of the few positives that legalization has brought about. But, um, you know, the whole kind of quality aspect of, 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 of this plant, it's really being, you know, been revealed kind of through cannabis testing and it's been one of the most educational experiences on its own. But I wanted to also mention, uh, you know, infused products, right? Like the way, you know, whenever people take edibles, right, you couldn't trust edibles before, you know, and kind of, you know, the way uh, they're metabolized by the liver and concentrate, you know, by a factor of up to five times for certain people, you know, it just made. Oh, hey, now, now really that guy at the Dead Show told me clearly to eat half a goo ball, wait an hour and a half till set break, and then I could eat the second half of the goo ball if I felt okay. I'm the one who ate the whole goo ball uh, and, and spun out in the parking lot and missed the show. So just, just there were some standards in place. But no, you weren't getting it down to the uh, milligram. Totally. Well, and, you know, that's what's really fascinating to like, learn across time, too. It's just like, 
you know, the, our endocannabinoid system, that's like why we're wired to receive can, cannabinoids, right? It's like, we're all so different blood type and metabolism and over underactive kind of activity lifestyles, you know, all these things contribute to the sensitivity of cannabis. Also your tolerance, you know, we're all so different. And that's, what's so beautiful about this plant. It, there's such a wide range of diversity that the plant offers, you know, phytochemically speaking from the terpenes and cannabinoids and, you know, to the, to the doses that, you know, each one of us need to kind of set up properly for a good experience with cannabis. And, and, and to take your point, uh, as seriously as it does deserve to be, uh, taken in the old days with with edibles you know somebody would say well how is this going to affect me and you just in essence say well somewhere between one and seven glasses of wine is how strong it is well that's too big of a range um and so it has sort of opened up the world of edibles for a lot of people who benefit uh from that that's really been a huge change uh, and, and then I really want to talk about our understanding of terpenes and how that has changed uh, connoisseurship around cannabis and our real understanding of the plant itself. So, you know, at first when Cannabis Testing Labs launched, the testing of THC really kind of almost brainwashed a whole community. I mean, and testing in a big way at like the beginning, especially kind of did a bit of disservice because it really created this this one focal point of THC is the way to understand this plant or CBD, right? But just very basic, you know, one dimensional perspective. And so what, I, what, what I've learned over time from analytical chemistry is kind of aligned so much with the tribal awareness that those that are closest to the plant have always known about what really matters or defines quality more than like, you know, this certain percentage that you get on a piece of paper from a laboratory. What are the things that really matter to choose or define, you know, quality, you know, because THC is not it. We've tested for the Emerald Cup, you know, since 2009. Every year we've tested for cannabinoid content. You know, at a certain year we kicked in pesticide testing and, you know, things were, would be disqualified if they were seen or popped positive. But it was in 2015 we started testing for terpene content as well. And so every year since, if you look at cannabinoid content and the averages versus what the judges pick as winners, you could always see that cannabinoid content's never had anything to do with what a judge picks. So you're, you're saying what has the most THC in this contest that is bringing together the best cannabis from all over California is not predictive of the winner in these uh, flower categories, yeah, it's it's not predictive, nor has it ever been what the uh, what's won, you know, an Emerald Cup. Um, but if you look at and analyze terpene content, right, and and maybe like I'd love to take a step back just on what terpenes are, right? Um, I'm sure you know a lot of people talk in terps without kind of really you know kind of awareness of what they are, right? And so. Just for those listeners out there that are interested, you know, kind of um, terpenes, you know, they're the aromatic compounds that plants produce that bring fragrance. You know, plants produce these compounds that, um, you know, both to ward away predators, to call in pollinators, to repel from the UV from the sun. But um, it's these these terpenes, the, these secondary metabolites that the plant produces that, you know, together with cannabinoids are what actually create a unique effect that that is possible. You know, the effect range in cannabis that's historically been described as, you know, indica to sativa or somewhere in between. Um, you know, we're, science is now helping to substantiate that, that, that whether or not a strain's tall, thin leaf or short, fat leaf, 
really has nothing to do with what the phytochemistry of a plant produces, right? And so, so really, if we want to get to understand more of the unique range and diversity of what cannabis offers, we need to kind of pay attention, not just to THC or CBD or CBG or whatever cannabinoid, but what the secondary metabolites that are produced are and are what are present. So, so terpenes combined with cannabinoids at the unique ratios that the plant produces, you know, are what make a strain of cannabis more uh, or a certain cultivar more stimulating or cerebral or focusing versus relaxing or comforting or calming in a strain of cannabis right in a cultivar of cannabis i should say you know there could be 20 to 30 plus percent cannabinoid content by dry weight right um as part of the chemical fingerprint and then the rest of that chemical fingerprint is going to be terpenes and other types of compounds right so you could have you know if you took like an anatomy of a bud right you know 20 30 percent right could be cannabinoid content up to three to five percent can be in terpene content, right? The aromatics that really, you know, help to substantiate effects. And then there could be like up to, you know, a percentage in other trace aromatic volatiles, things like flavonoids that distinguish flavor, um, things like alcohol esters, um, thiols, right? The smell of gas, the sour diesel, you know, chem dogs, OG Kush, right? Diesel-y, skunky terp. That's not a terp, right? It's, it's, it's uh, actually a very trace faint sulfuric type compound like that that are called thiols right and so the presence or absence of this very trace sulfuric compound will make us will turn on or off the smell of gas in the strain but my my larger point right and this is kind of gets to like defining quality right so so terpenes and all these other aromatic volatile compounds they're very fleeting right they go away really quickly right? Based on temperature and storage conditions. Like if a plant's harvested in the middle of the night, right? Or in the middle of the peak heat hours of the day, you know, there might be like 25% less terpene content on the plants that were harvested in the middle of the day because the heat volatilizes off these aromatic compounds. If you've ever grown cannabis and you smell the terpenes in the air in the day, right? Um, towards the end of the day, like that's an off-gassing that happens. The reason why you smell them is because they've gone away from the plant and into your nose. So every day in this way, there's this recharging of these secondary metabolites, right, to protect for the next day's amount of sun that it's going to get. And so, you know, these compounds, they, you know, again, they kind of go away really quickly if they're not being taken care of. A lot of the primary terpenes that are found in cannabis, actually five of the six primary terpenes, um, you know, they're, they're monoterpenes, so they have of the lowest boiling points. And so around room temperature, they can start off-gassing and going away. Th there's so much to kind of gain for the craft community and for the development of the, the, the definition of craft by understanding kind of the role that terpene presence and the aromatics present have. They're the most important thing to kind of preserve. But most consumers of, um, you know, that, that buy cannabis at dispensaries across the nation, they've never seen what farm fresh, sticky, cured herb looks like. You know, most consumers that pay top shelf prices, you know, by the time they're buying it, it's been like months just sitting in a warehouse, you know, all the terps go away. Maybe there's a little flavor left or aroma, but largely it's dry and not kind of pungent or chronic. By the time most cannabis makes it to dispensary shelves, especially in the flood of states that happened with legalization, most herb is at 1% or less terpene content, um, whereas it might be 30% cannabinoid content, right? That's a 30 to 1 cannabinoid terp ratio. Or, or if the terpenes have all gone away and it smells like, hey, 
that's like 0.2%. That's like a hundred to one cannabinoid ratio, right? So in, in my opinion, that like that, when the ratio has gone so far apart, you know, the craft designation has been lost. It's now like biomass. That's like what distillate tests, like 150 to one cannabinoid terp, right? Because there's no terps, right? And as opposed to kind of, a, if you had a strain of cannabis that was harvested in the middle of the night, dried, cured, preserved immaculately, refrigerated all the way to the point where it goes to a dispensary, there could be three to 5% terpene content there, right? So if you had something that was 15% THC, 5% terpene, that's like a three to one cannabinoid ratio, right? So the presence and influence of flavor and aroma and whatever entourage effects possible, it's guaranteed to be really strong in this example versus the one where all the terpenes went away. But again, I apologize. I just <laughs> rambled on about all that. No, we're 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 calling we're calling this one nerding out on weed is going to be the name of the episode. Now I picked that before cool. we started, so this is this is perfect and and really fascinating. And I was just recently up in Humboldt, and I was given some farm fresh cannabis by uh, an incredible grower, and I brought it home from my trip. And now I've got it with like some jars of really good cannabis that went through the whole supply chain that you're talking about. And it's just not at all comparable. And that is where there's this opening for craft cannabis for small producers to compete against, you know, what's now corporate cannabis and what could be big ag cannabis in the future is certain aspects of quality cannot be scaled up. And what the labs provide is a scoreboard of sorts, and especially when we move away from THC and into terpenes and uh, these complex aspects of the plant, where they, they can have all the marketing in the world behind their uh, agribusiness-style grown cannabis, but it's not going to bring that complexity of the plant. And, you know, there's the reality of that, and then there's the metaphor of that, because I think what this episode has sort of been about is these polar visions of the world, you starting in the military, and I'm not knocking people in the military, and I don't want to have the big discussion about it. But you're certainly organized around the idea of killing people, you know, and ending up at Tim Blake's farm, which is organized around this plant that we know is beneficial medicinally and spiritually, and that brings to this world some things that we really lack and need. And now when we talk about the cultivation of the plant, we're talking about a range from this big ag model that is doing so much damage to our planet and the people who live on it versus still the Tim Blake model. You, you know what I mean? It's it's and 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 if you you know want to get, we have a, a little pretend sideshow called the Green Pill, where we talk about uh, uh, cannabis conspiracies. But the links between those uh, defense contractor companies and those agribusiness big ag companies, they're the fucking same. 
You know what I mean? They're the same people. They're the same power structure. And they're the same vision of life on this planet. Um, and so, you know, Alec, I've loved this conversation. I learned a lot about your personal journey for somebody that I've known for a long time. I think that what someone like yourself has brought into this conversation is looking at the plant in a scientific way that's centered through the soul. As we move away from the big question of should cannabis be legal and into the question of how do we organize the cultivation and distribution of this plant, um, that's the perspective that we really need. Yeah, really appreciate that thought. You know, it's 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 funny. I've kind of realized I've went all over the place kind of in this conversation. But, you know, I appreciate how you, you were able to help kind of pull it back around. Um, you know, one thing I did want to hit hit on real quick on the uh, the Emerald Cup to really kind of pull together to just a, some of the points I was trying to make around terpene content. You know, looking at the average across all entries, across all the years, you know, cannabinoid content, versus what the judges pick as winners, you know, cannabinoids never been anything to do with it, like I was mentioning. But if you look at terpene content, it's quite the opposite, right? If you look at all the entries and the average versus, you know, the top 20, what a judge pick as winners, you can always see that terpene content's at least one standard deviation higher in terpene content than what the average of the entries are. And so you could always, you already see, you know, in this event that's completely anonymized, blinded, you know, kind of what naturally these expert level judges kind of start naturally kind of, you know, come to align on as, as what they would call the winner of an Emerald Cup with hundreds of entries, you know. And so I got this really blessed opportunity kind of uh, a few years back to start being a judge, like you mentioned. And, you know, um, really early on, I, I just really, really uh, quickly learned just uh, how, how, you know, what smells good to me might not to you, right? We all have our personal preferences or, um, you know, terpene biases, right? So certain people love the smell of tangy. Others love the smell of Jack uh, Herrer, rhymes with terror, or train wreck, right? Um, and 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 so, so you know, kind of I'm really proud of kind of the work that we helped kind of bring about with the Emerald Cup. It's also kind of starting to be adopted by California State Fair, but you know, testing everything before judges get it and become, you know, kind of sorting it by primary terpene, you know, uh, content essentially. And then, you know, give, you know, kind of giving it to the judges sorted individual smell classes. We've, we've performed hundreds of thousands of, of analytical tests uh, for, for terpene content in cannabis since we started testing back in, you know, 2013, we launched terpene testing. 2015 was the first year we started tracking Emerald Cup data. Of the hundreds of thousands of samples we've tested, everything we've ever tested really sorts into what we see as, you know, one of about six archetype smell groups, right? Like aroma classes, you know, from there, there's multiple subgroups within a category and there's, you know, ever in, you know, infinite complexity to the little notes, you know, nuances that different profiles offer. But um, it was, it was just really revelatory because we learned that everything can be organized like Merlots with Merlots, Chardonnays with Chardonnays, Rosés with Rosés, right? And that's the most fair way to sort them. What are what are those groupings for cannabis? Totally. So the dessert class, right? That's caryophylline, limonene. That's kind of like the gelatos, wedding cakes, ice cream cakes, Sunday drivers. And those are the names. Those are the terpenes associated with that grouping. Yeah, ter- uh, caryophylline, limonene, usually codominant. Sometimes a little higher limonene in the cakes versus sometimes a little higher in caryophylline in the 
you know, more earthy, gelato-y kind of profiles. So desserts, that's one category, right? Then you have like OGs and gas, right? Chem dog, sour diesel, gorilla glue, right? You can you can use the terpenes to sort them. Limonene, myrcene, and caryophylline are the primary terpenes found in, in um, those profiles. But again, like I was sharing earlier, the smell of gas isn't even a terpene. So you could, you know, kind of, you could do the best you can by sort, sorting by primary terpenes and have something that looks like a, 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 an OG, but you know, whether or not it has that little trace sulfuric tom- compound, you know, will change whether it smells like gas or smells like kind of like dough or dessert. Um, so yeah, so there's, so there's desserts, there's OGs and gas class. Um, there's, uh, f- like sweet dream fruity. Right. That's myrcene, like really high myrcene. That's kind of the cherry AK, like Panama red, tangy forbidden fruit, Calio, purple Urkel, GDP grape ape, right? Kind of a lot of classic purple or, or, you know, kind of, or, you know, the modern day purples are kind of more in the dessert range of things, but, you know, a lot of the classic purple strains uh, that's really high myrcene with a little caryophylline. Right, that's the GDP grape eight purple effects, God's gift, all those types of profiles. Then there's the um, there's the tropical floral class that that's uh, this terpene osamine. Some call it osamine. I, I prefer osamine because way more of awesome name. Um, but osamine is the terp that's kind of brings about. It's a, it's a, it's one of the primary terps in the smell of lavender. Right, so la- the smell of lavender is linalool and osamine are the primary terpenes in that smell. So it's this like low-key floral terpene. Whenever it's primary or with myrcene, kind of there's this class called like the tropical floral class. So like super skunk, dream queen, green crack, you know, kind of uh, in the pines, pineapple, you know, kind of mango, a lot of profiles like that. Then there's the the um, Jack and Hayes class, and that's kind of the classic sativa type class. That's terpenaline, terpenaline in really high amounts. That's the, you know, Jack Herrer, um, uh, Trainwreck, Super Lemon Haze, Durban, Dutch Treat, Bull Rider, um, a lot of those types of profiles. And then the sixth class is, is really kind of reserved for the most exotic or rare terpenes. And that, you know, that can be like random examples of like pinene, limonene, pinene, like so alpha pinene followed by limonene, followed by beta pinene. That's a really rare, super, super rare profile, like 1% outlier. Quick shout out. Anybody who's got that weed that smells like pine, get in touch with this podcast, please. And I don't mean uh, a faint whiff of it. It's like, that's one thing I remember from the, the, the best, the first weed I ever smoked that distinguished itself. You know, I grew up on brick weed, definitely. Uh, the first thing I ever paid more for, the first thing that was called Kind Buds, it wasn't given any specific name, had this pine smell that I feel like I've been chasing ever since because I know, and I know from my one uh, list, uh, careful listeners know that uh, I attempted to be a flower judge at the Emerald Cup once and and had to, in essence, bow out uh, for, uh, I, I could no longer see the forest for the trees, as they say. <laughs> it is an overwhelming endeavor and you you realize that no amount of personal dedication can uh, provide you with the skill set of discernment 
that somebody who professionally analyzes cannabis has, whether that's at a lab using instruments or, you know, uh, to get back to kind of one of your earliest points about the uh, innate wisdom of the cannabis culture, mm-hmm. smelling weed was always how you set the market rate for weed yep. in prohibition cannabis. And nobody knew what a terpene was or meant, but there was a complex understanding of how, one, that weed that smelled better was more potent. You know, the better you grow a particular strain in a particular environment, it's going to express the most terpenes and then how it's handled uh, and maintained until it reaches you. That is a 100% accurate way to analyze cannabis without any scientific instruments made available to you. And then it is the exact way uh, that you determine it with scientific instruments up to and including our most current understanding of it. So um, the nose knows. It's also quite personal of a feedback loop. Cannabis that smells particularly good to you is probably going to be the kind of cannabis that you like the best. I'm going to ask you as we as we roll out of this episode, where do you see cannabis itself going in the next couple of years? What 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 will be the new expressions of the plant that you think will get people excited? I mean, so much I I've I've had a long hope and prayer that um that those that have been in service to this plant for as long as so many people have, you know, that the plant ultimately really helps kind of provide them a path forward. You know, it's been a really rough time for so much of the community, you know, this new time of, you know, kind of capitalism and cannabis and, you know, kind of um, just all that that can bring, you know, for good, for better or for worse, you know, kind of, um, I still have a lot of hope that, you know, kind of quality will prevail. Yeah, overall, um, very grateful for you having me over here and Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. Do- double shout out. I'm not kidding about getting in touch. If you got that uh, sweet, sweet pine weed, um, you know, this this podcast uh, uh, enriches my life. Uh, not always enriches, but certainly in making some connections. So I really do uh, want to hear from somebody about that. Some news you can use at the end to reiterate is... Store your cannabis in uh, in the fridge, uh, in in a tightly closed container. And you know, our show last year got this podcast got downloaded in eighty one different countries. So, uh, well aware that this is being listened to by people uh, in every range of the spectrum from. Uh, the incredible choices we have in Northern California, particularly when it comes to seeking out legacy cannabis growers to places where it is quite, quite oppressive. And I'm sure people are grateful to have relatively safe access to anything that you can um, get your hand on. So uh, my message would be Make the best choices that are available to you and understand that if you currently live in a place where you have the opportunity to support authentic quality cannabis and this way of life that goes with it, 
and the consciousness that goes with it make that choice because that is what's going to incentivize there being more of that cannabis in the world. And if you are in the struggle to have that kind of access and to be out from under this war on cannabis, realize that's another thing that you're fighting for is to have access to this plant in its uh, best form grown by people with love and care for the plant and uh, brought to you in a world that I hope in this year will be peaceful and free of the drug war. Alec, thank you so, so much for this incredibly enlightening conversation, for sharing some of your personal life journey with us, from sharing what you've learned in 13 years down at the Weed Lab, for being a friend and supporter of this podcast for quite a long time, uh, for being a friend of, of mine, and for being a friend of weed itself. Hey, thank you very much. So much respect to you and Abdullah. Uh, a big fan. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, aka Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.